everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Last week, we talked briefly about how philosophy is an exploration. However, this can really be generalized to all of humanity's endeavors. Sometimes exploration is physical and tangible. Sometimes it's cognitive and abstract. And sometimes the veil of time makes it hard to distinguish which of the two took place. While these legends can create great curiosity, today you'll be glad your exploration is the cognitive kind, because no one wants to come face to face with a kraken. <laughs> nice. All right, so um, nice. <laughs> looking for topics for this week's show after episode 100, um, which has been a really good success. People seem to like it. I'm glad that they did because it, it was very long. It was quite quite a listen, but. Um, people really seem to be liking it. I'm glad we didn't put people off. But. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was, you know, thinking of thinking of topics. What are we going to talk about next? And um, a song from 1984 came across my um, phone. It was um, "The Call of Cthulhu" by Metallica, <laughs> uh, which is probably my favorite Metallica song. Kind of an instrumental sort of thing. And I thought, well, wow, it'd be kind of cool to do another monster we did godzilla godzilla was was really neat mm -hmm. let's do another monster um and of course godzilla is more of a, a modern incarnation we, we looked at that from a lot of uh, film aspect and that sort of right. thing um the kraken is is older than that but now, not all that much <laughs> right yeah that's what i was about to say much older well it depends a little bit on the story which we'll get into but we should start with what is a kraken all right so <laughs> what fun so a, a, a kraken uh, the german word is crake or kraken it it means octopus <laughs> uh, so it takes a veil away all right <laughs> but it sounds good and and it is a, it is a gigantic sea monster what has been ascribed to the kraken uh, as characteristics um actually very similar characteristics sometimes with sea monsters that have appeared throughout human the history of storytelling back to the the greeks and before <laughs> really i so who knows how far back i mean it's back yeah we we tell stories, so so the kraken, so called, is only about two hundred and fifty years old with that name, and Norse, <laughs> which then has an umbilical connection back to about a uh, in the twelve hundreds, one of the uh, Norse sagas, which mention uh, the sea monsters. Uh, which we take to be Kraken. So it's not Greek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not all Greek to me. No, it's <laughs> right. So, yeah, so Kraken, Crake. Um, so, it, yeah, octopus. But all, and also, I was looking, some of those etymology terms uh, also um, correlate with like like a tree, like with gnarled roots. A or gnarled something. tree, a, a, a thing that is more like a crab. Yeah. Now, being immersed in things Disney, as I am of, of late, uh, finally got to the end of, you know, because I watch piecemeal these things, uh, of Moana. Well, in the Moana story, there's a gigantic crab. 
or is he a lobster? I think he's a crab. Yeah. Uh, called uh, Tamatoa. Hmm. Well, he would be a kraken in, in the folk stories, and perhaps Tamatoa is, is actually a kraken. I haven't researched that that yet, of, of filling that role. So, so uh, kraken becomes a role rather than a distinct figure. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll start to see that as we yeah. as we dive into a little bit further. So that's kind of the sort of a, a history of the Kraken, right? Is um, you know, like you laid out, really, it's it's only been being called that name since you know the couple a couple centuries, and mostly from the North at Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes sense. I mean, you think with the Greeks well, on the Mediterranean Sea, what kind of sea monsters are you gonna? Well, it's a they, big body of water, but, but but when they were approaching what we now call Italy, and we know that the story of the, the Aeneid is about the founding of Rome by Trojans who were in exile, but we have Odysseus encountering Scylla and Charybdis, and Scylla is uh, a tentacled, multi-tentacled, horrific monster on one side of a cliff. Passage between Sicily and and Italy itself, and and on the other side is Charybdis, which is a gigantic whirlpool. Hmm. Um, Odysseus opts to fight the tentacled beast, but then gets pulled into <laughs> Charybdis. So, but but the tentacles and the whirlpool, uh, uh, which science uh, anthropologists and so on ascribe to the strange and difficult eddies, currents, undercurrents um, generated in oceans and seas. So these are sort of signs Hmm. of a monster being present, even if you don't necessarily see the monster. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think that when we ask, when we ask that question, what is a kraken? It's really pretty complex because you can look at that from a couple different ways, right? If you look at it, um, from a historical lens, like what did historical people think a kraken was? Um, you can see based off the name, they were they're probably, um, you know, they're probably thinking of a, a giant squid or an octopus, some sort of cephalopod, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Of large proportions. But then, if you look at it from uh, a more ecological lens, and you start to look at, at how they talked about it historically, yeah. you think, okay, well. They may have seen a giant squid, and that just may have been coincidentally, you know, uh, happening at the same time that they were caught up in an eddy that that sunk their ship or something, right? Right. right. Um, because the you know maelstroms, eddies, whirlpools are very prevalent along Scandinavia, where the Kraken story developed. Mm-hmm. So, um. And ships disappear. And on ancient cartography, there's oh, there's so many maps, the equivalent of r- roughly this. Here there be monsters where the lines of the map no longer exist. Well, there's some philosophical stuff we'll get into with that. But, you know, if you think, all right, past the borders of what we know, monsters are there. The edge of the world is there. Because if we don't know it, it must be dangerous. And, and ships disappear. And, and there was uh, there were what ten or twelve ships that disappeared really uh, close closely in time, uh, and some people became convinced that that was, and this was in the seventeen or eighteen hundreds. Became convinced, oh, it must be the Kraken got them. It turns out it was a hurricane. Mm-hmm. 
but the Kraken is much more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that, you know, I'm not sure why that, why that is, you know, I think maybe there's some comfort in people thinking that they're sailing, um, you know, their technology, their navigational skills, these sorts of things are sufficient to the task of exploring the ocean. Hmm. And so if a ship doesn't come back or if something goes wrong, it's, it seems a lot easier on the psyche to attribute it to a, a supernatural force that is unstoppable than to actually admit that, well, these, you know, the boat just wasn't up to the task or we didn't bring enough supplies or our navigation skills let us awry or something. Which is going to take me some point in this discussion to a, a, another creature, but, but still the idea. I think what the the idea I'll toss this out now we can shape it, but the idea is that you just raised what I always think about is having only been on the ocean a couple of times and then not all that far off from shore is it's vastly powerful mm-hmm. it is beyond the human means of 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 control, and so whether a storm takes you. <laughs> Well, if one has ever even been in an, at the edge of a storm on the ocean, it is not easy to take. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when we choose to ascribe it to supernatural or, or something monstrous, there's this conflation of metaphor and reality. Hmm. Uh, either way, it's monstrous. We would call it monstrous. But, but one is way beyond us, and the other one is well, we know there's storms in the ocean, yeah, but that doesn't tame them. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, and I think that's where bringing those other lenses comes into comes into view, right? Because like you said, <laughs> it doesn't matter if there's real monsters or if it's just nature that's monstrous, right? A, a maelstrom is just as monstrous as a kraken. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've seen any of these videos, but like people sailing through um, like the... Uh, the Pacific Southeast, and all of a sudden, a volcano will just go off under the water, and lava will start spewing up, and like yes. islands will just start forming yes. in front of them. Yes, I mean, if you're an ancient person, that might seem like a creature. You know? <laughs> Even if you're in, in the age of the Enlightenment, I mean, it's so so the the Kraken by name is 250 years ish old <laughs> in in uh, northern lands, and. And and was even included. There are all kinds of problematic things about Carl Linnaeus. Linnaeus, his name was transformed into Linnaeus, but changed the the built the way science categorizes things. But he did it in a in a way that is. if not intentionally misogynist, was misogynist and included things that um, still echo and are problematic into our own time. But he made the crack in a category hmm. that was later removed from his book. <laughs> uh, so even science was embracing this. And this is what Jules Verne was playing with when he did 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I, uh, some people may still read the novel. I, it's, a, it's a fun novel. It isn't the Disney movie. It's mm-hmm. often different from it. But but Captain Nemo and the and the mighty Nautilus encounter a gigantic squid. They don't call it 
quick crack in the, uh, when they're fighting it. <laughs> but it's a giant squid, and it's pretty scary. But but why they encounter it is is the issue that we'll we'll get to. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So we've we've looked at sort of the the general thing it, it, when asking the question, "What is the kraken?" Um, it's difficult to answer because um, various descriptions are given of it. Um, mm. Whether it's been um, described as something resembling um, a whale from medieval times to you know our our typical sort of portrayal as as a giant squid or octopus, um, all the way to um, something that stretches miles long, right? Just that mile and a half, whatever. Yeah, 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 my, yeah, miles long that you could actually park your boat on and fish off of. Um, <laughs> that has multiple heads, multiple arms, and horns and things. And so, with taking all of these various descriptions and then trying to ask the question, "What the kraken is?" You can come to a variety of yeah. scenarios. Maybe the the sailors who saw the miles long kraken, maybe that was a volcanic island developing in front of them. You know, something, and they thought, "Oh, this is a, this is a kraken. It's a giant creature welling up out of the sea." Right. Uh, maybe the people who saw the multi headed creature encountered uh, an entire pod of marine animals all at once. Um, obviously, there were there was probably real encounters with giant squid that led people to think of the kraken that way, or with whales or sharks that led people to think of it the other way. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty good um, description of that. Um, as far as was was everybody describing the same animal, do you think? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that you know, I this I want this to, to come out right because I I, I will will not mock sailors of centuries ago who were out there on, as you talked about, vessels that some of them were sound, some of them from a couple hundred years ago still exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, vessels that in some ways could not be as strong as the vessels that we necessarily have today. And they're out there in storms and hurricanes at, uh, uh, totally exposed to the marvels of the of the, the un-light-polluted sky uh, it's vast, 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 whatever way you think about it. And, and I, and of course, one is going to think about stories. And of course, one is going to think about things that can get you or how many different ways can you perish. And, and, and not every single moment, I imagine, but I think that human beings tell stories. We, mm-hmm. and, and so they're going to make up the monsters that seem particular to, whatever their life experience has been and their sailing experience has been and what they do know or about animal life. And some are just going to weave tales that they want to take to a place where maybe it's all believable, but if we carry it too far, mm-hmm. I mean, if we say it, something can be oh, that, that it's a mile and a half. Well, that's <laughs> not, we're getting past Godzilla's size. Here now. Right. So how far can you, can you get, what can you get away with? Yeah. Yeah. And that that extends into the other way as well, because you know people talking about um, them finding sea stars or these different creatures along the shore and saying, "Oh, well, this is the kraken's offspring," right? I said, "Well, these things were all over the coast, so if you really believe that this was the kraken's offspring, there must be." millions of crack in the ocean and nobody's right. seeing them sailing on every day. Right, right. And then there's the, the idea that that resonates right into our own time, which 
is is exciting and sad all at once because we know less now about our oceans than we know about um the atmosphere above us we 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 have fewer resources devoted to oceanography at a deep level than we have to very small i mean it's small there there's a very small finite number of vessels that are actually studying the ocean mm -hmm. and there's more ocean than anything else on the planet yeah so it's totally not outside the realm of believability when we when we know things such as tardigrades or or various vent creatures living by volcanic vents at the very surface of depth of the of the marianas trench and other places where the water would just instantly crush a human being but creatures live they drink and eat things that are next to a volcanic vent they they can stand up to pressures that we can't even begin our ships can't necessarily stand up to and so it, and, and we know that we haven't seen much down there and we know that we see big things washing up from down there uh so it's not at all surprising to me that we make these stories yeah i think that you know and this is something we're definitely going to explore here in a bit you know <laughs> when you look at the ocean how how large it is and how vast it is how mysterious it is um and some of the scary things that are out there yeah it's very analogous to to outer space you know <laughs> like and you think about sci-fi stories well the kraken was sort of a sci-fi story about a different type of outer space for <laughs> explore you know ocean explorers back in the day yeah. and of course you know we have we have a little bit more science now to to determine some things but there's still things out there it's funny if you start reading through um you know scientific articles about deep sea creatures how many times they just say yeah we don't know yes. what this thing is like yes. we yep. happen to see one of these one time yep. um so we know that they're out there but we don't know how widespread they we, are we can't they, we can't over general we can't generalize about a, yeah. a species by one example yeah, yeah. Right. so right there there's uh, there's a lot of deep philosophy happening as a matter one little in insight into it in my own life is i remember my uncle um was was a prolific sailor and he actually sailed on uh, a vessel with sales legitimate sales mm -hmm. around the world all the way to the far east and everything um and i remember at a family gathering one time he was talking to um a guy and we were on uh Cuca lake and the guy he was talking to lived on the lake and um my uncle mentioned casually that he doesn't know how to swim <laughs> and the man who lived on the lake said are, are you crazy? Like you went sailing all over the world's oceans without knowing how to swim. Like, doesn't that terrify you? He said, well, if I became shipwrecked on the ocean, I was dead anyways. What would swimming help me? Right. <laughs> and that's a change of perspective, right? If you're on Cuyahoga Lake and you're sick, your ship sinks, it helps to be a good swimmer because you yeah. can get to shore. You yeah. can legitimately get to shore. But if you're in the middle of the ocean and one time he did have a uh, half of a mast snap off during a storm, hmm. um, you're really in, out of your depth you know <laughs> <laughs> and so when you're out of your depth that's where a lot of the philosophy happens it is so uh, do are there other cultures that have stories about the kraken it's really there's a lot of scandinavian is where the kraken comes from what other from around the world what other people tell stories about a, a similar sea monster well uh, polynesian cultures 
or what we used to call Polynesian culture. I would say Pacific Rim cultures. Any any sailing based culture that you can point out, we can point out. I, I can't list them all for you. The monsters' names at the moment, I'd mispronounce them probably anyway. But but they're there when you read when when you read the, the folklore. If you're if you're sailing. You're seeing mer people, you're seeing monsters, and and you're feeling the effects of, of of the influences of some gods or others. I think that's perhaps it's overgeneralization, but it certainly seems to be true in in cultures. And and so to go back to to the Moana thing, uh, with giving due deference to um, Disney being attentive to multicultural issues more now, in some ways they're. There are of uh, those creatures that they were talking about in the movies, not exactly by the same names, but they're there. And so I just think it's the nature of sailing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I, I went on a whale. I was hoping to go on a whale watch once it got canceled because of the, the weather. I would really like to see a whale. But oh, one yeah. time I'm in, in Alaska, uh, we did a glacier cruise and, um, we saw porpoises mm-hmm. and it was pretty wild because the tour guide knew she said, we're going to get, you know, a couple miles offshore here. And then this pot of porpoises that's always there is going to perform for us. And sure enough, they came swimming in formation. You know, they had a very tight formation. They came swimming and then they started doing tricks. You know, they started jumping over one another and, and dancing around and doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when we reached the end of their their territory there they they turned around went went away and just watching it happen you know if they were at a little distance away where i couldn't quite identify them it could be very easy to assume that they were mer people right because their body shape sort of looks like somebody taking a dive um and then you know a tight formation sort of indicates in an intelligence or a design in movement and then this performance you know is it it looks like theater, you know? And so and, and yes. this idea that ancient sailors, man, what a bunch of idiots. They thought that these fish were, you know, mer people. No. It's like, man, well, if it at a distance or in an age before eyeglasses were invented, or if you had some, you know, scurvy or nutritional deficiencies, or the sun is hitting a light a certain way to create Or you a just hear, or you just hear. I mean, I, I, this is not going out on a limb to say that some of us who've been near deep water or waterfalls, cascades, all kinds of permutations, you hear things. There's a, there's a, a a creek that uh, has been profoundly uh, present and influential in a little place where I live down through the valley. And there's a waterfall and the, and the creek running. And I love to sit by running water. I sit by the Tennessee river. And when you get to a place where there's a rapids, or the water's interacting with a bunch of stones. It, it, and you, you get into a bit of a lull in the afternoon or whatever happens to me. You, 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 or sometimes it's troubling. You think you're hearing voices, voices calling for help, sirens <laughs> calling to you, oh, come, come out, come out to the water, right? Or, or come help me. Or uh, what are you doing here? Or, but it's not as distinct as that, but you just hear the sound of like a crowd of, or a group of people burbling and talking, and, and you're trying to make it out. And then you realize what you're doing, but it's not at all alien as a concept. 
I was on a whale watch long ago with, uh, with my children's first whale watch I'd gone on and it, it, it hit gold. It was, and this mama whale and her calf just started breaching, breaching and breaching and breaching so much so that we had to leave and go back to the shore and they were still, the calf was playing, the mama was looking after it and they're, it's hard to describe the sublimity. We've talked about sublimity. The sublimity of having water that's maybe a tiny bit choppy, but relatively smooth. And suddenly, this huge creature straight up out of it shooting and then landing and splashing. And then it's gone again. That's sublime and awesome in the most um, etymologically true senses of those words because what was there is not and then it's there again and it's potentially monstrous but it's beautiful yeah yeah and so we haven't really talked much about the behavior of the kraken but that's important right because um oh yes yeah we got you know and i think that this this plays into a little bit of the time right because you think about it, really up until modern times, there were no gigantic seagoing vessels, right? Everything was, was pretty small. Yeah. And so with everything being pretty small, um, it's you know not, not hard to imagine ocean creatures really didn't have any sort of conception of humans, you know? So if you see a small vessel with some maybe some oars sticking off the side of it, that's pretty easy to mistake for a prey animal if it's small enough. So, I want you know, is a giant squid attack of a small boat out of the question? Because the Kraken is known for dragging ships down right, into the ocean. That's, <laughs> that's its signature move, right? So, is this completely um, a complete uh, fantasy um, or, or, you know, ghost story of, of the ocean? Mm-hmm. Or is there some science to it? My bet is this, right? I think, like I said, there was, there was no... Um, these animals have never seen ships before. They see a small ship, maybe with some oars. It looks a little bit like a prey animal swimming. This giant squid goes to eat a whale, right? That's what it eats. It eats whales. Hmm. Well, what's a big ship with a couple oars kind of look like swimming up there? It attacks the ship, um, you know, maybe wraps its arms around it, tries to pull it down a little bit, maybe takes a chunk out of the bottom with its beak, right? You're letting some water in, <laughs> quickly realizes it's not food and leaves. Yeah. And then you have a story about the Kraken. Because guess what? You don't have a story about the Kraken if the sailors don't live to tell the story. Well, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, or you have a third-hand people ascribing it, never seeing it, and thus, thus making it a bar, which back to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Nemo and his Nautilus are tools of vengeance and isolation. Uh and they're what's uh, attacking uh, all kinds of vessels around the planet in uh, roughly Civil War era uh, in the novel. But people think it's a, a, a giant narwhal <laughs> with a big horn, because of course it must be. And they're drawing pictures of Krakens and everything else. So, yeah, even if, you, if you're not there to see, you don't have a first-hand witness. If you're there to see, well, then you've got... Call me Ishmael. And, and because really, uh, I think it's arguable that Moby Dick is a kind of Kraken. If you're talking mm. about a category. 
Yeah. Um, a monster that won't die that has not, that may, that may or may not have, it's the intentionality thing. And this is what we need to get to. The, uh, I think most people's experience of a Kraken probably across the past 20 years has been Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> I think the second movie in yeah, the yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean. And what, and the Kraken is pretty traditional, except it's in the Caribbean. <laughs> so it's it's giant giant octopus coming out rapping taking it's, it's, I remember the scene in the movie it was fun right it was just like ah crack smash down down goes the vessel what's the kraken's purpose in that, in that narrative story do you remember because I do mm, it's been a long time okay no. the kraken is has sent by Davy Jones because Jack Sparrow owes Davy Jones a debt. Okay, verisimilitude is entirely <laughs> out the window. But remember, Jack Sparrow jumps into the Kraken's maw. He gives himself up to the Kraken. And he ends up in this upside-down internal world. Hmm. It all becomes very um, <clears throat> alternate universe. Uh, again, a reverse, a mirror universe. All right, fine. The, the, the gist of it is that, that Davy Jones sends the Kraken. All right, we go to the Clash of the Titans movies, which affected people in the past 40 years. And, and, and there's this, this classic line, release the Kraken, which has become a meme for people who let the monster. But that didn't get said in the first movie, just like Captain Kirk never said, beam me up, Scotty. Just, you know, all of these things. And Berenstain Bears are spelled two ways. <laughs> so, so we have, in this case, a monster that is being loose, loose the Kraken, says Zeus, because of a city's refusal to do the right thing. So it's a, it's a, it's a punitive tool that's, uh, chained and held. And Ray Harryhausen, who did the so much marvelous claymation work for science fiction films in the fifties and sixties and seventies, he did this monster, but it sort of looked like one of his other monsters from a space movie <laughs> um but the per the point is that it was and even in the perseus story uh it, it and which is what clash of the titans is about it wasn't called the kraken that's where the movie took the norse word but in, uh, injected it into greek mythology and changed people's vision of it but uh, he he was in fact uh he uh, Poseidon, uh, and, and it was Poseidon in this case, uh, Poseidon uh, uh, visited the country with a flood and sent a dreadful monster from the sea to destroy both men and cattle. monster didn't have a name. Uh, so call it the Kraken. <laughs> uh, release the Kraken was in the second version of the movie, which was which was kind of awful. But but again, there's the Kraken as as tool. But in the Norse, it's just the monster a pair of monsters that are seen out in the depths. Hmm. Or, you know, it's, it's not about wrecking havoc on behalf of somebody or yeah. towards some moralistic judgment. Yeah, and that's important. And this is where this is where our conversation is going to sort of shift, right? From from talking about the Kraken, yeah. um, which, which is difficult, right? Because there's no consensus on what the animal was even like much less um, 
what it did or what its motivations were or, or you know what it looked like yeah i mean these types of things mm-hmm. um but moving into works of fiction that are inspired by the kraken right you talked about Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea um and, and getting into this yeah. and so really any mention of the kraken where it's working on the behalf of somebody else is automatically a work of fiction, regardless of the reality of the creature, because it's exuberant, you know, it, it exudes a hubris that people have the ability to control or, a monster. Or, or if uh, people's supernatural entities, Davy right. Jones is no Zeus or mm-hmm. Poseidon, but somehow the supernatural can control the monsters. Right. Well, okay, but then that pre- that pre- assumes something about the universe. If this can control that monster, and this can control, or or then we go, then we go into the literature of the Bible itself with Leviathan, hmm. uh, perhaps one of the oldest krakens, <laughs> resting at the bottom of the water until what? What are we waiting for with Leviathan? It's going to come up and help destroy the world. Yeah, you know, at the behest of God, right? <laughs> uh, and this. This really relates back to our our talk about Godzilla, right? Because that was a main theme that ran through the Godzilla story, was um, sort of this this tension between um, humans' ability, right, to modify and control nature on on a huge, enormous, powerful scale, and then the enormous, unknowable power of nature. And humans' inability to contain it, right? And so Godzilla talked about that from a nuclear sort of viewpoint. Um, fictional writers that were inspired by the Kraken um, took it in a different direction. Right? They, they, they did. And this is where we arrive at a at a meeting of David Hume, the philosopher, and H.P. Lovecraft, <laughs> and uh, a being that. He named uh, it's pronounced Cthulhu. Cthulhu. It's just fun to say, right? <laughs> um, and and misreadings of Lovecraft on that. Little little thing on the side. Yes, we we know that H.P. Lovecraft had uh, incredibly racist things to say about the world. And uh, as a relatively young man, I will not try to justify that or anything else. However. I'm talking about his creation, uh, which would be hard pressed to, to put toward any um, politicization because it really this story, the call of Cthulhu, um, is the embodiment of his larger philosophy, which was called uh, mechanistic materialism, cosmic mechanistic materialism. And this is where nobody's in control. Right. And, and that's why I think it's important. Um, and if I talk to you about this too much, you interrupt me. And, and no, I think that, I think that this is where the conversation is leading because it's very important because we need to talk about the Kraken or Kraken inspired creatures philosophically. And part yeah. of the philosophical discussion is talking about the deeper things about it, right? We can describe the creature. We can give the historical background of the creature, right. but describing how the creature affects human thought is really the crux of the issue. And I think that where our conversation thus far has led and what is the most important part of that philosophical discussion mm-hmm. is looking at 
the two ways that the storytelling takes place. The, the way that says, all right, humans or supernatural entities um, can control these monstrous creatures. And then the exact opposite opinion that says, there are monstrous creatures and there's nothing that humans or their gods can do about it. Here there be monsters, live with it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the Call of Cthulhu, uh, his story, and and Lovecraft always, often, um, he made books up like the Necronomicon. And then there's fanboys and girls and people who just want that to be real. And it's not. (laughs) Sorry, it's not. but he started the story with uh, an epigram from from Algernon Blackwood, who himself was a, a suspense and horror writer. Uh, and the epigraph says, of such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival, a survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps in the shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. That's at the beginning of the story. The first sentence, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Wow. <laughs> you're not going to you know, that that's not you're not going to read that many places no you love language um but it, but the very thought right is that, that and um i i went back to a, uh, some of the work by I, i'm on the periphery of, of lovecraft scholars I, i'm one I'm, I'm not prolific and st joshi is the master and he has written he, he reshaped the whole field over the past 40 years. And um, I've, I've been happy to call him colleague and that he welcomed me into this. But, but what he, he says uh, is that the inability to cope with knowledge is a comment not on the evil of knowledge, because everybody wants to make Cthulhu another evil monster. He's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's frightening. Uh, but it's a comment on the uh, feebleness of humanity's psychological state, uh, where men can have no effect on the suppression or releasing of these cosmic forces, it is best not to know about them, not because the knowledge is itself an evil, but because this knowledge uh, is it causes you to see the world in less delightful terms. Mm. Uh, the spring and summer aren't so springy and summery. Uh, for our own peace of mind, it is better to preserve the illusion of our safety than to face the existence of cosmic forces that may destroy mankind and the universe and against which we have no possible deterrent effect. So Joshi was pointing out that the, 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 the Cthulhu story, unlike the, 
uh, some parts of the Kraken story, but very much like the here there be monsters and the and, and perhaps the the twelfth century twelve hundreds Norse story is that there are things we can't control, and pretty much we're surrounded with forces we can't touch. And if we put together all of the information about that, it might drive us mad. Knowledge is not evil. These forces are not evil. They'll tear us apart, but it's not personal. The, the Lovecraft uh, did not develop a, a mythos of good guys and bad guys. It was just ever-deepening layers of a universe that would gobble itself up. Qui-Gon Jinn in the Star Wars movie said there's always a bigger fish. It's true in Lovecraftian stories. Yeah. No, and yeah, again, when we were talking about Godzilla, right, that was an, an important part of it. The initial vision for Godzilla was this creature that wasn't good or bad. It was just a force of nature that couldn't be reckoned with. Yes. And then Godzilla ended up getting... Um, sort of neutered in in some respect and becoming yeah, pulled on the team. Oh, he's a good guy. Right. He's, yeah, a, he's, a, he's, he's a good guy. We'll right? use him to fight King Kong. We'll we'll capture these monsters and they'll battle each other. Yeah, <laughs> and so again, like this this idea of of good and, and bad knowledge, right? All of a sudden, the story um, doesn't have to be about monsters anymore. But like we were talking about the ocean, monstrous forces, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and knowledge, right? And so it's not it's not hard to see where this tension comes from between um, a monster being an overwhelming force of nature that's not good or bad, just doesn't care, and humans being able to control them or tame them or manipulate them. Because when you look at the ocean, right, and you look at ocean exploration, right? Yeah, back in the day, with our small ships and our limited knowledge and technology. Here be monsters, right? Scary things happen. Bad things happen on the ocean. But humans, through science and technology and exploration, you know, slowly start to master some of these domains. And I think that that slow, minuscule mastering of some domains breeds this confidence that eventually, given given enough time, given enough technology, we'll master all domains, right? But even today, right, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, less than 2% of the ocean floor has been mapped. There's creatures down there we don't know about. We have we have no idea what's happening deep in the ocean, despite our cruise liners and oil tankers sailing across mm-hmm. the, the surface of it now, right? All right, so, you know, we know very little about it. So the tension is already there, right? Oh, look, we've mastered the ocean. We have ships much bigger than the Titanic that sail safely every day. We know how this works. But deep in the ocean, we know nothing. And what stories are being told deep in the ocean when these gigantic vessels settle down and suddenly go plunk? Is it like the, the, the Dorothy's house coming from Oz and landing on a, a witch? What are we stirring up? So I'm having fun now with this in the Lovecraftian way, right? Yeah. What are we stirring up by dropping our broken vessels down there and our trash? And our, I mean, Godzilla ended up having a thing called the smog monster. It had gotten so moralistic and so that the, the, the monster is created out of literal trash. Well, science fiction has done that with the islands of trash in the Pacific. Um, what happens if that trash getting, gains sentience somehow because of all the chemicals and the, the, the wires and the, and the elements that are mixed in that stuff? This is where cautionary tales arise. Hmm. Um, 
the, the don't do this or you should fix this kind of thing. I'm, I'm not, I don't think the Kraken was about that. But as you say, we have this undeniable seeming need to convince ourselves that we can control everything. And, and the monster stories. So here's David Hume. This is you know, philosophy, right? And, and this has been used to talk about things from, from the movie Alien to start. The first discussion I think of Hume came with, with an Alfred Hitchcock film called The Birds. Hmm. And there's a, a marvelous book about the philosophy of horror that's, that's worth a read. But, um, Hume was a skeptical skepticism. Uh, he was skepticism was his thing. Uh, and, and his, his account of philosophical arguments and their relation to everyday life is what I'm after. And, and presenting, he presents the manifold contradictions and imperfections in human reason. Uh, he claims that the authority and legitimacy of reason have been thoroughly undermined in his time, in, in the Enlightenment, which, uh, uh, so you can look on no opinion even as more probable or likely than another at its worst moments, he said. Sorry, it, his skeptical arguments uh, show that he is in the most deplorable condition imaginable, and environed with the deepest darkness and utterly deprived of the use of every member and faculty. Reason can't stand up to save him from this condition of darkness because reason itself is collapsing under the, the weight of everything that's finding out. And doesn't that sound like, okay, 200 years later, here's Lovecraft writing. Uh, we don't, when we start piecing everything together, um, It'll drive us mad. Yeah. It's not like we're going to save the universe. No, the universe doesn't give a, yeah. a bit about us. It's just, and, and so, but here's the, the crux. Reason can't save us from this condition of darkness. So what do you do? Is there a silver lining? Reason can't dispel the clouds, but nature suffices. Nature cures me of philosophical melancholy and delirium. I dine. This is Hume. I play backgammon once in a while. I converse with friends. And after hours of, of my return to those things, I come back to the speculations and they seem ridiculous or cold. So basically, Hume is saying, yeah, you look at it too hard. The universe is an impossible place. I'll go play backgammon. <laughs> Which is... I mean, you want to talk about horrific, that really encapsulates it, right? <laughs> What's more horrific than that? But I think that, you know, we've talked about this, um, and, you know, it, horror doesn't need to be this huge, um, overwhelming, monolithic, confrontational thing. No. I think horror does exist in everyday life, and part Absolutely. of that is in in the ad aversion to philosophy, right? We, you, you and I have both had experiences with people. You start having these these deep discussions with people, you know, rather than just talking about the weather or what you're going to do this weekend, talk about, you know, well, where, you know, is there any other life out there? Is there anything else yeah. happening? People say, well, it makes my head hurt or, well, yeah. I don't want to think about that. You know, it's unpleasant. That's, yeah. that's the horror that exists for all of us. Right. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter if you are a, a philosopher by trade or if you've never, attempted to think about these things on purpose in your life i think that horror still exists for all of us right? I, I think it does too and this is and we go to this movie that you and i have both seen that i i, I 
of Jordan Peele's uh, movie Nope. This is why the characters, when confronted with impossible forces that they don't understand, <laughs> nope. They're not going to look at it. They're not going to look up. They don't want to make eye contact. Nope, it's not there. I'm telling myself it's not there until I get into my safe truck or something. That's human. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, nope. <laughs> I'm right. going to whistle my way through the dark one. I'm going to go play backgammon. I'm going to go dine. I'm going <laughs> to forget about this. And yeah, and I, I think that that's, you know, maybe that plays into that tension too, right? Maybe part of that that gamesmanship, that subjective experience, that need to dispel the cognitive dissonance is is giving that creature some sort of intentionality that we can manipulate, right? Mm-hmm. If we can just say, even if it, you know, even if it is bad at first, like a Godzilla, right? If it has an intention, then humans can manipulate it. Humans can find a way to to make it work for them. But if it's just something that is outside of our control, then it's horrifying, right? And it doesn't matter if it's outer space or if it's deep in the ocean. Um, that's where that's where monsters be, right? Be. That's where they are. Is, the Cthulhu is, city of Relea. This, this is not a story about Godzilla rising to Cthulhu's it, 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 it imprisoned or, or asleep in this possibly huge alien maddening place under all the muck in the ocean. It just happens to rise temporarily because of an earthquake. A natural force releases another abominably worse natural force which has affected the the, the dream life of people in 1925, of artists and poets, but not so many other people causing this narrator to finally piece together more than he wanted to. But ultimately, uh, Raleigh, uh, Cthulhu, uh, sink back into the ocean because it wasn't time for them. And you don't know when the time for them is going to be. You don't know if there's a purpose, a design, sooner or later they'll rise, maybe. But just the fact of them being there yeah, is what changes you. You can't this is the argument. I think this is the Humean argument. Once you know something is there, whether it's a giant monster or something you didn't want to know about in your own life, it changes how you see things. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if here be monsters in the ocean or, here be or if here be monsters in, spa- in science fiction or if here be monsters in your mind, right? Um that that always exists it's always there that idea that once you know about this unstoppable force whether it's a kraken or whether it's aliens from space or whether it's global warming mm-hmm. you know once you know that it's there having that knowledge right the knowledge isn't good or bad but the knowledge is is enough to unsettle you to, yeah. to drive you mad yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think that that sort of encapsulates where these where these stories come from. Yeah. Does the Kraken live today? <laughs> well, in the movies, it does. <laughs> um, does it live today? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think we search. I think we want to see the Kraken. Hmm. We may be sorry if we do, but 
simply what I, 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 the reason I say this, you, you've seen these uh, videos on Instagram, YouTube, you know, uh, uh, where you have the carcass of the gigantic squid. Um, or there's one I saw a couple of days ago. I don't know how it showed up in my feed, which is a strange thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's this thing that looks very much like nope for a moment. There's this gigantic, um, triangular kind of opening, like a, a flower or something. And then fish are starting to fall into it. And it's whales and it's more than one of them. And then after a bit comes up, the mouth closes. You don't even see the rest of the creature. Hmm. And, and it, the speculation is that they're starting to take food this way because the fish in deeper levels have been driven up because of the warming. And so the whales are adjusting to how they take their food. But just the image, when you look at it, you don't have any uh, titles on it at first. You see it, and then you realize the the proportions of it by something you can see in the background. It's awesome <laughs> um and you think what if my boat was sitting over there well yeah hi geppetto <laughs> yeah <laughs> goodbye jonah down you go and it's like wow yeah i think it's still alive today i think we're looking for it yeah and i, I think that adds another dimension to it right does the kraken live yeah i think that um you know it, it even in our minds right the the kraken lives and that's part of the issue is right it, it's not just the awareness of the knowledge um, drives us mad, but there are crazy people out there like you and me that are looking for that knowledge. Well, they're, they're, <laughs> looking they're for the looking for that knowledge. I mean, storm chasers, mm. I think, are kind of kraken hunter. Yeah. If I, but uh, to, to me, because of the kind of day it is, I suppose, <laughs> uh, I would posit that the entire planet has become a kraken. <laughs> And it's going to get us. Yeah. <laughs> Not out of any malice, but, you know, it's, we've, we have, we have released the Kraken because of choices that we have cumulatively made. Um, not to say I'm not giving up on all of us, that humanity will probably continue, but it is, monstrous as a thought yeah and that's an interest that's another interesting part of the whole story right is we've examined um the human relationship or control of the kraken but human causality in bringing the kraken about right you know we talked about it with the historical context all right well humans start sailing on the ocean in boats that look like whales that provokes us a squid attack right or humans start creating an unlivable environment on the earth just through the the natural process of you know escalating technology. how do how do we evolve to, to adjust to that right do we physically evolve probably over time does it occur rather rapidly do we do the transhuman uh, necessity of modifying ourselves in order to live in the event? Do we, what, what, do we dive, dive underground and live? Do we, all of the science fictional things are there. How do you deal with a monster when you know it's out to you? You never go out to the ocean again? 
there's a little bit in the Moana story. Do you, <laughs> do, you, do, do, you, do you say, no, I'm going to confront the monster as if somehow there's this, we can be better than this and we can fix all of this? I, I, I think that there's an element of that there. But I, but I go with Lovecraft and the idea that the universe doesn't really care. Mm, right. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the, just, just a side note. I mean, to me, the idea when we call these monster black holes at the centers of galaxies and we, and we know now that they're there in some places. And a week ago, I listened to an audio, uh, that was released by, by NASA of, the sound of a black hole. You want to be a little bit troubled? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing tweets about that. People were saying, somehow I knew that this just wasn't going to be, you know, like bird songs. You know, it's going to be something horrifying. No, no, and it is. And it is just a black but hole having a tent. No. <laughs> and, but the most horrifying part, right? And this gets at the heart of what we've been talking about. The most horrifying part is that that sound is actually 52 octaves deeper than what you're hearing in real life. That's the horror. That's the horror. <laughs> it's going on all the time and we don't hear it. Right. Unless we have the enhancements. Okay, that's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, and there's and they know that there's the you know smaller stellar mass black holes um, that are just traveling through space without any star companions, without any um you know, accretion disks, completely invisible, just wandering mm -hmm. through the galaxy. Mm -hmm. At any point in time, some one of those could get too close. And they just did a calculation recently that if the orbit of Neptune were to change by two-tenths of a percent, the entire solar system would be thrown into chaos, right? Again, there is the horror, right? Yeah. The monsters, the krakens, right? They're out there. And despite the stories we tell ourselves, and despite this artificial tension that you and I have been talking about, they really don't care. <laughs> These monsters, they do exist, and they don't care, right? But well, they're just is, different than the way that we imagine them. This is what, and that's well said. This is one of the things Immanuel Kant was talking about in, in, in terms of enlightenment is a, a monster is an, an unthinking, unintentional being um to be enlightened is to be educated or be self-educated but just because you become self-educated doesn't mean you remove all the monstrous possibilities hmm. so so yeah a black hole gurgling in, in space a hundred thousand light years away from us is, is enough to scare you not to go to sleep if you listen to, you're not going to listen to that like <laughs> like your wonderful sleep <laughs> experiment that you did with sound now you're not going to go to sleep listening to that uh, but but we go to sleep even though because we let ourselves play backgammon and we don't think every moment about all the tremendous pressures under the water, the glacier hanging by its fingernails, so to speak, that uh, when it slides off, the oceans will rise by feet. Uh, we just, we can't dwell on it all the time or else we go. Yeah. But if we run away from it entirely, then we've already we've already given in to the monster. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's any like a uh, nice fluffy way to wrap up this podcast. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, but yeah, that I, you know, if there is right, if there's any bright side, right. 
we can look at historical krakens and say, you know what, nobody, people aren't telling the the same stories about being shipwrecked by krakens anymore, right? Because we did get to a point where that's no longer a threat, um, and we created different issues in the process, right? Um, and I think that that's the best humanity can hope for, right? Is when we are faced with these problems, these monstrous problems, we have shown initiative in the past and, and we've, we've faced challenges that we've met in the past to get to where we are now. So we have that capability. Um, but I don't think that we should ever expect to live a, uh, an existence free from monsters or problems, right? In, in solving one problem, we're going to always create another one and then we're going to have to face that. And that—that's life. Life is a struggle, right? <laughs> that you—you you said that so well. I—I I, I think you said it. Uh, Cthulhu still. This is the last paragraph. Cthulhu still lives too, I suppose. Again, in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young, his accursed city is sunken once more. But his ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle-capped monoliths and lowly places. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss, or the world would by now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Hmm. <laughs> and he <laughs> gets a little better than that in the last couple <laughs> sentences. But, you know. <laughs> I love it. So if you want to go mad, until next time... Uh, <laughs> ha,